Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. Over the past few weeks, I've had the pleasure of speaking with several physicians and hearing their stories And we're going to continue with that theme today. I've actually invited one of my attendings from residency, Dr. Nicholas Kamenelis, to join us on the show. And I've always found him fascinating. Not only does he have a passion for education, but he also combines that with his love for international medicine. And he just has so much that I'm so excited to cover today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kamenelis. Great to be with you and yours. (laughs) Well, I guess let's start at the beginning. How in the world did you first get into international medicine? In high school, I actually had a course that was on uh, career planning. And the teacher said, hey, remember, high school is not forever. And this is your opportunity. You've got a few weeks here to explore what you want to do with your life. The assignment for the course was basically to write an essay about what you're interested and what's your plan. I had some free reign and I was actually planning to do aeronautical engineering. I was the kid in class who was always, you know, drawing pictures of airplanes (laughs) instead of listening to the French teacher. (laughs) And I was walking through the library, just browsing books. And there was a title that jumped out at me. The title was deliver us from evil. And so I pulled it off the shelf and was instantly mesmerized. The author is Tom Dooley. He was a graduate of the St. Louis University School of Medicine and young medic in the U.S. Navy, only about 28, deployed to Vietnam just before the outset of the war. Well, with the threat of war, people in Vietnam were fleeing. They were looking for safety. They were looking for food and shelter and protection. And well, Dooley spoke French. He had gone to Notre Dame. And so they, Vietnam had been a French colony. So the Navy said, you're the one who's going to lead all the refugee care because he had the language skills. And so, so here's Dooley, you know, young doc, didn't know anything except French. In the book, Deliver Us from Evil, he was describing like what we saw in the early days of the Ukraine war multitudes of people fleeing with just what they could carry and they couldn't find their children and they were sick and they were off their meds and some of them were injured. And I was so inspired over over a period of a couple of years, how he ran a refugee camp and provided not only medical care, but everything else that, that people need. And after reading that book, I was like, dang, forget about airplanes. I want to do this. So did you start on the medicine track or did you start on the travel track? I mean, which which came first? Which is the cart and which is the horse? My family, several times when I was a kid, went to Greece. My father was an immigrant and I spent a couple of summers living with my grandmother on a tiny little Greek island. 
And so the idea of another culture, an airplane, another language was pretty comfortable to me. And I was at home one night and my father, knowing that I was still planning to design airplanes, spread out a copy of the Kansas City Star that had this article feature about the new medical school in Kansas City, the combined MD, BA program, UMKC. And he said, why don't you do this? Well, I had just read Deliver Us From Evil. It all synced really well. It's like, yeah, let's go down there and talk to those people. I didn't have the best grades, but I got in. And so as a med student at UMKC, then I was University of Missouri, Kansas City. I was looking for opportunities to emulate Dooley. And so when I was a uh, sophomore medical student, I had a Haitian friend who ran a clinic in Haiti. I went and spent a couple of weeks with him. They had a little OB hospital where they were delivering babies, but they had no gloves. And they had newborns, but they had no blankets. There were no medications. It was very, very stark, very sad. But nevertheless, when I was a junior med student, I had another opportunity to do an international elective. And this time I went to Honduras, where there was an American doctor who had been living there for 30 years. And that was really critical because even though I was only there for a couple of months, I got to see this long-term vision. And he did have gloves and he did have blankets and he did have Pitocin. <laughs> and uh, that, w- that was a bit more, yeah, this is doable. So when you first started your career, did you start in a clinic or did you start as an educator and then bring along the international focus? And where did you go next? So all the way through my my med ed, I was thinking of an international career. And, and when I say international, I mean low resource cross-cultural. Okay. And I had a roommate from China, from Shanghai, and UMKC had a relationship with a school in China. And so I went there and I did actually a cardiology elective with them. And I did my training in both family medicine and in public health. I did family medicine at the county hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, John Peter Smith Hospital. And then I went to St. Louis University for public health. That was a really good combination for me. I'm very population health oriented in my interests. All right. So I finished up my training and it's like, okay, now let's make some big commitment. (laughs) So it began with years at the charity hospital in Shanghai, China. And this was the 1980s. China was a poor country. There were no cars. City of Shanghai, 10 million people, was nothing but bicycles. Wow. And the diseases we cared for were primarily tuberculosis and rheumatic fever and schistosomiasis. Doctors were paid $40 a month just like everybody else in China. Oh my gosh. It was a true communist system. And some elements worked pretty well in that basically everybody got medical care. It, was, it, it wasn't the most up-to-date medical care, but they, got, but they all got something. No one got turned away. I really enjoyed my time in China. I still have a faculty appointment in China. I still go there once a year, uh, but that's another story. <laughs> Do you speak Chinese? I guess I didn't know about your... 
Chinese experience with medicine. 对，我说汉语。你应该在中国说汉语。如果你说了，你不能工作。Oh my gosh! <laughs> How many so languages much, do you speak?、Oh, I'm so sorry. So much for high school French. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That teacher、so、didn't I, have a chance. Well, language learning, I have found, it's all about motivation. You know, if you've really got a reason to learn, then you're probably going to learn just fine. True. I did. Yeah, I'm a lifelong Chinese student. I still have a tutor. I still meet with him once a week. Just like anything, just like playing a musical instrument or or a sport, you know, you've got to keep at it to stay good. So, when you came back to the states, where did your journey take you next? I always wanted to work in a war, and that comes back to Tom Dooley in the Vietnam War. I wanted to be in a conflict zone. I know that sounds crazy. Wow! Don't tell your parents. <laughs> <laughs> and I was approached by a group of churches in the nation of Angola in southern Africa. And in the '90s, Angola had a civil war that had been going on for 40 years. And as a result, there were no schools. Money was worthless. Most of the hospitals had been closed. There were landmines everywhere. And I thought, yeah, let's go. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Sign me up. But the people I got to work with, the Angolans that I got to work with, were absolutely inspiring. You know, they love God. They want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a hurting nation. And I got the privilege of working alongside them in providing vaccinations and maternal care and some trauma interventions, lots of treating measles and malaria. Disease is largely connected with war. If it wasn't for the war, then the kids would be vaccinated against measles. You know, if it wasn't for the war, then the women would have modern OB care. And of course, the the big solution to improving the health in Angola was to stop the war, which they finally did. Well, the war escalated while I was there, and I came back to the U.S. after being gone for about five years, and took a faculty position teaching family med at. University of Missouri, Kansas City, and then immediately being approached by all these med students and residents saying, "I want to do what you did. Help me get started." You've always been so inspiring. Just hearing your stories when I was back in residency about all the trips that you would take and the people that you served, and just the enormity of what you were doing. It was always so inspiring. So、yeah. I. What was it about twenty years ago that you started in med? Yeah, that's right. So it it didn't begin all at once. I was still doing full time faculty work, and what I did was I found some places that people could do international rotations, and it was with colleagues that I had met in my own work. And so I sent some people to Ghana, and I sent them to China, and I sent them to Angola. And then I really quickly recognized that well, they need a curriculum to go with this. They need some. They need to know what schistosomiasis is, and they need to know how to treat malaria. So I wrote some lessons to go with that. Then over a period of a couple of years, it just grew. There were more students, more rotations, people wanting more lessons. And then in 2003, I. Started、uh, a nonprofit education corporation called the Institute for International Medicine, and I left my day job because I realized that 
you know, to do this, I'm going to have to have some time available. And of course, that was a big unknown. You know, how is this going to work financially? Are people going to really be interested in this over the long haul? Do I have the capacity? My son is a video producer and he's done a lot of video work for me. And he said, well, dad, yeah, but you started with a worthy goal. And that's what's kept you going. And it's like, yeah, you know, I think he's right. You know, we had a lot of deficiencies, but what we had a worthy goal. What an absolute leap of faith. Yeah. So now 20 years later, the real highlight of the whole experience at InMed has been just the wonderful people I get to work with. You know, healthcare professionals who are largely altruistic, innovative, willing to suffer some discomfort, you know, wanting to make an impact on the world. You know, those are fun people to hang out with. (laughs) So through your organization, I did a little research before we talked today, and it looks like you have everything from a conference that someone can kind of learn more about international medicine all the way up to a master's program. Do people normally start kind of on the lower end and then just progress in their interest? Or how how do people find you and how mm-hmm. do they get involved in this? So you're right. Most people start by by taking one course or coming to one conference. And then as they gain experience, then of course they may gain confidence to go ahead and do more. We do two conferences a year. One is the Humanitarian Health Conference in Kansas City, the second weekend of each June. And this year will be the 18th year of the uh, Humanitarian Health Conference. Pre-COVID, we had about 500 participants. Last year, we were about 300. It's coming back, just like all conferences. It may take a little while. Sure. But it's an opportunity for people to not only learn more about the field, but maybe more importantly is to meet some colleagues who who have a similar interest and to meet organizations who will be uh, represented that you might want to work with. For example, in Kansas City, we have a big humanitarian group called Heart to Heart International. Mm -hmm. So Heart to Heart will be there recruiting volunteers. And we also have the Higgins Brothers Surgery Center in Haiti. And they will be there recruiting volunteers, as well as some of the local Kansas City-based groups, you know, like Jewish Vocational Services and Catholic Charities. You know, you don't have to have a passport to volunteer. Do you typically, is this a physician-only conference, or do you have nurses and people from other types of medical specialties that come join these conferences? We cast a broad net. We have about half physicians and about half everyone else, including NPs and RNs and physical therapists and dentists and pharmacists and healthcare administrators, chaplains, public health people. So we really try to incorporate all the different health professions. The other big conference we do is on the island of Roatan in Central America. That is in September, the the last weekend in September, And that's for people that are especially interested in Central America. So if if they're working in Dominican or Haiti or Honduras or Nicaragua, Guatemala, that's the draw. And a lot of people at that conference are actually citizens of those countries who are doing healthcare. So last year, uh, about two-thirds of the participants were Honduran physicians, and the other third were people from the U.S. who are interested in working in Central America. What type of course content do you 
have when you're like at the Roton conference? We try to emphasize hands-on skills, things that you couldn't learn just by logging into a website. So we do complicated obstetrics. You know, how do you manage a shoulder dissociate? Here, here's the mannequin. Let's work on this. You know, newborn resuscitation, extremity trauma, splinting, wound care, suturing, ultrasound, those kind of uh, those kind of hands-on skills, which of course make for a lot of fun too. When you're when you're with a group of people who are trying to figure out how to close that wound, that's that's more engaging. And I'm always fascinated with my friends who have gone over and done mission trips or any type of international medicine. They don't always have the tools that we have here in the U.S. So do the conferences kind of focus on that as well, like you know, learning how to deal with an environment where you may not have, probably won't have the CT or the MRI or the great surgical suite. Is that a big focus of the learning? Yeah. A lot of our courses are, have the word low resource management (laughs) in the title. (laughs) So for example, one of the courses we teach is HIV care for low resource settings. You know, so how do you do HIV care if you don't have the ability to do genotype and drug sensitivity and you know, culture, man, culture for diagnosing opportunistic infections. Well, there is a real solid body of knowledge about how to do low resource HIV care, but it's not something that we typically learn in a high resource setting in the US. So if you're going to do HIV care in Southern Africa, well, you need to take this course because this will give you the elements that you need for doing that. So during, so those are our conferences. Now during the year, we teach courses. For people in medicine or nursing or public health, we have a, prof- a graduate diploma course that involves an eight-week online course that covers all of those elements of low-resource HIV management, trauma management, malaria management. And then we give people an international rotation. We pair them up with a faculty in a developing country. Now, that's normal for medical students and residents. You know, you do a rotation. But I'm struck by of almost half of the people who, who do our graduate diploma course are physicians in practice. And they'll say, you know, I just launched my children. It's finally time for me to do what I've always wanted to do. But I want to do it right. I don't want to mess it up. I want somebody to show me how to actually do this. And so they'll do the course and they'll go off for a couple of weeks and they'll work with the faculty and see how you do trauma care in Dominican Republic. That's amazing. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. You've done such tremendous things, but how were you able to start this financially? It had to have been such an enormous cost. And it sounds like you've always had a service-oriented job, whether it be volunteering in China or a faculty position, how could you do this financially? The couple of elements here, I've always been a saver. I've always been the guy that, you know, if I had an extra $2,000, spend it or save it, I'll save it. You know? <laughs> so I've been that way since high school. That kind of approach to life has helped. You know, I drive a Honda Civic. I live in a normal house in a normal neighborhood. I've been able to keep my baseline financial needs under control. I didn't start in-med until I was 45 years old. My kids were in college or finishing college, so I didn't have so much of the high cost burden you know, associated with kids' higher education. So that really helped. From a financial planning standpoint, 
what I started doing when I was about 40 was I started maximizing my 401k contributions. So right now you can open an individual 401k plan and put $58,000 a year into that. Well, if you do that every year for 20 years, you're going to have plenty of money to retire on. Essentially, that's what I've done is I've maxed out my 401k contribution limit each year. And I've kept my lifestyle under control in terms of day-to-day financial needs. And it's just given me the financial freedom to be able to invest in these, these other things that I really have wanted to do. You have such a beautiful story. You've made such a meaningful impact, not only to patients, but also to all of the people that you've helped educate throughout the year. You're just such an amazing person, Dr. Kamenelis. <laughs> You're one of the best of us, I that, think. That's kind of you, Tammy. I well, think that almost everybody in medicine would like to give more, share more, influence more. That's really a beautiful thing. It's one of the things I like about working with healthcare people. But to get there, we have to structure our lives in some way where we've got more availability. True. Now, over the years, have you written about your story? Have you written books? Have you written blogs? I can't imagine that you haven't chronicled your life in some way. I love to write. I do have several published books. I have two in particular. One is titled Shanghai Doctor, Shanghai Doctor, which is about my experience in China at the charity hospital in the 80s. I also have a book on decision-making and it's titled, Where Do I Go From Here? And it's all about how do you make good personal decisions regarding your family, your career, your important elements of life. And then the all of the in-med lessons are compiled in a book as well. But the world has changed in the last few decades. You know, now it's probably more important to have a really good video. <laughs> True. And a really active <laughs> blog site. If you go to the InMed website, I-N-M-E-D, InMed.us, then you can link to all of the resources and courses and conferences that, that I mentioned, as well as my blog and my videos, InMed.us. If we have someone listening who's kind of been thinking about learning more about international medicine, maybe starting out with that one class or one conference, do you have to start, you know, like a typical educational schedule in August, or can you do that at any point in the year? We have, we have self-paced courses, which you can sign up for and do at your own pace and get CME for these. And those don't have a faculty. They don't have a time schedule. You can just do it sort of like online CME. So that's one option. You can do a formal course that does have a faculty and does have assignments. And that starts five times each year. We have, we do eight week terms that start in January, March, June, August, October, and those earn academic credit. Uh, we offer a master's degree in international health, which is a 32 credit hour program. And everybody in the program has a day job. It's designed for people that are working and then they'll usually take one course at a time and they finish the master's in a year and a half. I think it's important not only to share skills with people, but also give people credentials that show that, you know, you really have invested in upping your skills in this field. Is there anything that we haven't covered today that you'd like to make sure our audience, you know, knows? 
if you're interested in caring for forgotten people, it's a beautiful thing. There are forgotten people everywhere. Disabled, elderly, veterans, low-income, non-English speakers, victims of war and disaster. You can find them in every community. And start by start with a small step. Volunteer at that charity clinic two days a month. And then as your as your interest, your experience grows, then meet some people who are doing this kind of work too. Find some individuals who inspire you. Spend time with those individuals. You know, encourage one another. Those are some really important first steps. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Kamenelis. I'm I felt like I knew a little bit about your story, but I had no idea going to China and your inspiration. So thank you for sharing that with all of us. Yeah, you're very kind to invite me. <laughs> well, again, if anyone listening would like to learn more about international medicine, you can go to the website nmed.us. And I hope you'll all tune again next week for Grand Rounds. <laughs>